one thing, maybe the thing that makes me proud to be a migrant, to be a Lancastrian, to be a northerner, is the story of the Lancashire mill workers who refused to support the southern states during the American War of Independence, the Confederates. And it's a wonderful story. And it's a story of uh, a suffering people who still have the imagination and the humanity to think of the suffering of others. Now, Paul Mason, former economic editor for Newsnight on BBC, now working with Channel 4, and here's the man who late last year told us, you know, I am actually sick of that corner, that corner over there. And he was making reference to the fact that once again he was in front of the RBS bank. As once again they were involved in corruption and once again nobody, but nobody was in handcuffs. Well, in an article for the BBC website, about two years ago, commenting on the cotton workers, heroes and heroines, and mostly heroines I might add, uh, makes this point. He said this, I can attest because I am descended from them and I've heard the folklore that Lancashire cotton workers in the mid-19th century were acutely aware every day that the last hands to touch the cotton before them had been black hands and unfree. Their support for the Union was not some abstract principle, but an expression of human sympathy with millions of black Americans that defies the historical stereotype of 19th century workers as an uneducated mob. That phrase, uneducated, uh, I find interesting because they were not uneducated. But nevertheless, they need leaders to tell them a good story. And for me, a good story is always a true one. We all need leaders, sometimes, often. You know, you get a, a man on a boat in the middle of an ocean and as he looks all round him, all he can see is, is the horizon. And he says, well, the world is flat. Well, it doesn't mean he's uneducated. He may be uninformed. And then he goes to speak to someone who explains to him, actually, the world is round and not flat. And I think it's the way how he reacts to that information that tells a lot about us whether he's uneducated or not. And it's interesting... Also, I think, because late in the 1930s, the cotton workers of Lancashire, they welcomed with open arms the visiting Mahatma Gandhi. Now, Mahatma Gandhi was in England for talks uh, because there were strikes in India which involved cotton and the government was to speak to him and he was invited to go to Lancashire and he decided it would be a good idea to go and visit the workers and put before them his case. Mahatma Gandhi, let it be said, was a very good storyteller. But the cotton workers were badly led, badly led by bosses and union leaders. Yep, union leaders. 
the same type of union leaders, I might add, we saw in the film Made in Dagenham, in cahoots with the bosses. The same type of union leaders we might have, we might have seen in Ken Loach's TV documentaries that he made in the 80s, had we been allowed to see them, had they not been banned by Channel 4. These were union leaders sitting at the boss's table, metaphorically and probably in the reality. And there's an illuminating document produced by McAllister College, which can be found on the internet, and it has this to say about the Lancashire Cotton Workers Trade Union. It, it says, was famous in some circles, well, it was famous and in some circles infamous, for amicable relations between trades, trade unions and employers. Trade union officials tended to be much more upwardly mobile than in other regions. More, Irina Specter-Marx, whose report it is, states, trade unionists feared rationalisation. By rationalisation we mean uh, making changes to how you produce, you know, new machinery, amalgamation. But the trade unionists, sometimes rationalisation doesn't work, but the trade unionists' reason why they feared rationalisation was because it often came with the loss of union power. They were more concerned with their power, and yet more. There was a social proximity between trade union officials and employers, not employees, employers. Some union officials were even referred to as Esquire. Now, there is a long history of trade unions betraying workers. And I believe one of the greatest betrayals was in the 70s. When these men of power were puffed up with the realisation that their power was very useful against the government and that the government would back down. And they went for the cojones. One graphic story, um, I can't find the exact quote anymore, but anyway, the, the quote went something like this, that um, there was a meeting between James Callaghan and one of the union leaders, and the union leader said to James Callaghan, your job is to keep inflation to 2%. My job is to get 16% for my workers. And the result was that the doors were opened and like Fulton Brass in Hamlet, Margaret Thatcher walked through. Now we don't know how Fulton Brass behaved, whether he was good or bad, but we do know all about our Maggie. Anyhow, let's return to something a bit more edifying. Let's return to our heroes and heroines. December the 31st, 1862. A meeting takes place at the Manchester Free Trade Hall in which it was proposed and agreed that support should be shown to President Abraham Lincoln against the slave-owning South. And a letter was duly sent to him giving this support. 
a support that came, I might, if I may reiterate, from a community that was already ravished by the slump in the cotton industry and could only be harmed even more by their action. Abraham Lincoln replied in January of the following year and had this to say. To the working men of Manchester, I know and deeply deplore the sufferings which the working men of Manchester and in all Europe are called to enjoy in this crisis. I cannot but regard your decisive utterances upon the question as an instance of sublime Christian heroism, which has not been surpassed in any age or in any country. It is indeed an energetic and re-inspiring assurance of the inherent power of truth and of the ultimate and universal triumph of justice, humanity and freedom. Here's a man who knew how to talk, how to tell a story. I will take uppance with only one part of that. He refers to the working men of Manchester. Most were actually women, by quite a bit, I think. So I'd like to say the working men and women, working folk of Manchester. Compare this to April 1931, when... Um, there were cotton strikes in India and Mahatma Gandhi visited England and Lancashire specifically. 8,000 people gathered in Blackburn to inform the government that unless a firm stand is taken which will stamp out sedition, lawlessness and disorder in India, there can be no hope for a revival of the Lancashire cotton trade. Sad. Sad because I don't believe that these people were fundamentally different to those in 1861. Here's another wonderful story. Charlie Roberts, Manchester United captain in 1909. From Darlington, by the way, before we might start puffing our chest out just too far. Was another man who knew how to tell a story. Uh, when the FA withdrew its recognition of the Union, because it didn't like its authority questioned, players were ordered to resign from the union or have their registration cancelled. As a result, many players did resign, but not all. Heroically, again, the whole of the Manchester United team refused. Charlie Roberts later was to lose his benefit, which was important in those days and was aware at the time that he and the other members took their action, that this was likely to be his fate. So he knew it from the outset. So these players were suspended but continued to train. And one day a photographer turned up. A photo was taken of the whole team. And Charlie Roberts wrote out a little card and placed it in front the outcasts. Lovely, beautiful. And later, Tim Coleman of Everton, a southerner, so see, we can't take them with us, eventually sided with the untouchables. And when he did that, the FA 
back down. Now, what about Tory stories? You know, those stories told by or on behalf of the Tory party. The Tory myths, and I use myths in the modern sense, which means just not true. And these myths really do take a hold unless they're challenged and challenged in a way that really you need to become boring about it, they will persist. You know, a bit like the Dennis Law myth of sending Manchester United down with his back heel. It wasn't the case. But there you go. Anyway, there's um there well there was an article by William Keegan, who's the economics editor for the Observer, and back in the middle of twenty or four he wrote um, an interesting article at about the time it was the 25th anniversary of um, Thatcher coming to power. And um, he starts off uh, by saying, hardly a week goes by without some pundit telling us that what happened is less important than people's perception of what happened. Well, he puts a lot of doubt on that. Perception is very important, he thinks. And he starts off with the first myth. The first of these myths came very early indeed. In fact, on the doorstep, after she'd won the election. Where there is discord, let there be. And Thatcher and the speechwriters attributed these words to St. Francis. Well, they had nothing to do with St. Francis at all. They came from a prayer that was composed in France in 1912. So not only were they not the words of St. Francis of Assisi, they were in uh, the words of Jim Pryor, a colleague of Thatcher, a member of a government, the most awful humbug. And anyone knows anything about Thatcher's premiership knows that that's exactly what it was. The next myth is the one of the Tories and the economy. Inflation and unemployment went up drastically under the Tories. I'm not going to bore you with the figures here. Check them out for yourself. There is the myth that 364 economists were proved wrong when they questioned uh, the government's adherence to uh, uh, monstrism, a slavish adherence. They weren't against monstrism as such, as a tool, but it was the slavish adherence of the Conservative Party, the Conservative government. And they were confused by it. And the myth is that they were wrong. Well, they weren't wrong. In fact, what happened again in the words of uh, William Keegan, was that Sir Alan Walters, uh, Margaret Thatcher's economic advisor, and others forced Thatcher to change her monetary policy. And a determined effort was made to bring the overvalued pound to a more competitive level. And it was this reversal was that stimulated a recovery. It was Thatcher's U-turn Thatcher's U-turn. Haven't I heard that somewhere before? Is it a myth? Another myth there somewhere? Maybe. And of course the great myth 
they are working so hard on today. And they must have been overjoyed when they heard uh, Pint Man come up with his statement about if I get to the end of the week and I can't afford a pint, well, then I'm finished. And everyone cheered to the rafters. Oh, they must have been so happy with that. Because they must have at that point they realised if they hadn't known before that simplistic arguments might just win the the day, and this uh, Labour opposition was too busy mumbling rather than really telling what the story was, and the myth that they want to perpetuate, of course, was that it was the last Labour government under Brown that caused the problems that we have today. Well, in fact, the problems that we have today were caused by corruption and gambling by banks in the market. And who started that? Well, that was started by the Conservatives, by Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, when they relaxed the laws on the markets. They unleashed the dragons. One interesting point about when you release dragons, and it came to me reading uh, Will Hutton's The State We're In, and it was a highly regarded book, was written in 1996. And at one point in the book, very early on, he's talking about Germany, and talk about how Germany was uh, a lot more careful in regulating the markets. Um, and he says that they did copy one thing, though, and shows how intelligent the Germans are about these things. And he says that um, they did copy one thing, and that was the use of hedge funds, which is a form of insurance uh, to protect um, when you're buying uh, and selling shares. Um, but Will Hutton, in fact, is wrong, but he's forgivably wrong because he didn't realise at the time, in 1996, how creative and how devious um, the people in the, in the markets would be. And that in the end you, you had situations where there were insurances on insurances on insurances on insurances. There were so many creative things that in the end they didn't know what they were insuring and they didn't know what they were buying. And so Will Hunt was wrong, but understandably so. And the point is that when you unleash the dragons, you unleash them to do things that you can guess, but you unleash them to do things that you would never have guessed that they would do. But a Labour government would put an end to all this, isn't it? Isn't that what Blair and Brown did? No, they didn't. They continued in the same vein, madness. But then I suppose they can always use Ed Balls as an example. If I'd have known then what I know now, madness. But I want to tell you, well, finish by telling you about a crime, a heinous crime. So heinous that my only way to deal with this, I think, is to set up a competition. And the competition is about how we can dispatch these people. And I think we have to make some rules about the best way to dispatch with them. 
you know, we can't do it quickly. So we'll think about how long it can be, how much pain they have to suffer uh, in that length of time. Okay, I'll leave it for this too, to think of the exact rules. But it's a, a horrible, heinous crime. And this crime is when I see, and I've seen it quite a few times on documentaries and read it, and it's the phrase envy. When they're asked the question, how do they feel about having all their money and they're not suffering while other people are being made to suffer because we need to tighten our belts? Uh, we are told that, well, it's just envy. And it's a heinous, horrible crime. Because I would say to them, look back at the workers in the 19th, the cotton workers in the 19th century who could forget their own suffering. Watch a program, was it called Secret Millionaire? And one of the things that always struck me about that, that the Secret Millionaire would go into an environment like Withinshaw, for example, a poor district, and what you would always find, whether it's in Manchester or Liverpool or London, wherever, and I believe also that you would find it anywhere in the world, that where there is this poverty, there are people still with open doors, allowing people in and these these millionaires that went in pretending not to be millionaires had no problem finding people that would take them in look after them and make them part of the community and these are the people who are being told that they're envious watch daytime television for instance i'm now giving the game away the boring life i have watch daytime television and sandwiched between the adverts to, to claim back insurance and how much you can win on a lottery, you will find sandwiched between two of these types of adverts, charities asking for money. And they know who the people are that are going to give them money, the people who are going to be watching these shows. And it's often the people of the working class, the poor, the working class who at that moment don't have work. And yet there are people like a woman I saw on um, a documentary last year about Britain after the big crash. There's a woman who was uh, hosting a, a po big polo event and had the audacity to talk about envy. If she were a man, I'd know what I'd do with her. Here's a clue for you. If I'd have only known then what I know now. I'm just reading the ITV webpage. The Labour Party faithful reacted with dismay today at a leadership campaign hustings in Stevenage when all three of the main candidates refused to condemn Tory welfare reforms. Jeremy Corbyn, of course, is the one candidate uh, that was not there and was not booed and of course is the one that would have gladly discussed it and would gladly have criticised this government but here's the rub for me at least and it's this he's there for the debate nobody thinks he's going to win he doesn't think he's going to win but it's a case of listen old chap you know we have to put on a front here you know and We'd like you to be there to talk about it. What do you think? Yes, yes. 
No, you, you're not going to win, but we'll show you put up a good show. Hmm? Go at it, boy. <laughs> is that it? That's it? The man is there just to talk about it? Because he's not going to get in. <laughs> is that what the Labour Party has come to? That they kindly allow people to talk about it? Nothing more. While the other three candidates, instead of really going at this mean-minded government, they sit there and mumble a few phrases. That's it. Very soon, Mr Labour Party, you are going to turn round and just wonder where everybody has gone. Let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. About a hundred years ago, the Liberal Party ceased as a major force in this country. And I doubt that 20, 50 years before, they'd have had the slightest inkling about what was going to happen to them. And it may be that not until we finally know who's going to lead this party, that it begins to dawn on a lot of people. But Labour Party, you are done. You are finished. And I think very soon you will turn round and you will ask the incredibly stupid question, why? <laughs>